grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father and Jesus Christ our Lord. Our sermon text today is from Ephesians chapter 1, verse 21. We're after describing Christ dying and rising again and ascending to the right hand of God and being seated at the heavenly places. In verse 21, Paul writes that this place, this heavenly place where Christ rules from, is far above all rule, authority, and power, and, and, and dominion, above every name that is to be named, not only in this age, but in the age to come. This week when I was preparing for Ephesians chapter 1, I was getting a little bit lost whenever I was reading the, the text. Do you ever have that where you're reading a book or a chapter or, or a paragraph and all of a sudden your eyes are moving along the page but your mind has left? And you get done to the bottom of the paragraph or the page and you're wondering, what did I just read? You ever have that? Four of you. Okay, great. All right, so we're up to eight from both services. I thought when I was writing this, it was like, people do this, right? But apparently, all of you are great readers, so good. Uh, well, it happens to me, and it's not unusual, but usually when I notice that going on, I just sort of double down on my focus and go back and pick up where I last left off and, and get further into whatever I'm reading. But for some reason, this reading from Ephesians was like Teflon to me. I just started it, and my mind kept wondering, and I'd start again, and my mind kept wondering. And I just couldn't pin myself down to read this. But then I realized what the problem was. The passage that we read today from Ephesians is the second longest sentence in the New Testament. The second longest sentence in the New Testament. And there is a lot of stuff in that sentence, as you might expect. A whole lot of different topics. About 75 different sermons you could preach from, from this text and all the different phrases and, and everything that, that flows, comma after comma after comma. And so I think probably my eyes kept, or my mind kept wandering because it was overwhelming. There's just so much information there. And I also realized that another challenge that I had in reading Ephesians chapter 1 was that from Ephesians chapter 3, verse 14, which wasn't included in our reading today, but, but from verse 3 all the way down to 14, uh, there is the first longest sentence in the New Testament. So you have the first longest sentence in the New Testament and the second longest sentence in the New Testament back to back in the same chapter. And so you can gloss over Ephesians 1. You can say, yeah, 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 I got it. But maybe your mind is wandered because of all the information that is coming at you. You're the first longest sentence and the second longest sentence right there. Some translations will add a period to give you a break, but in the Greek, it's the longest sentence and the second longest. But for as long as that sentence, those sentences are, and for as much information as they have, they are not actually the longest sentence in all of Scripture. They're not the longest sentences in all of Scripture. No, there's one sentence in Scripture that's longer. And surprisingly, that one sentence has just four words. The longest sentence in Scripture has just four words. And maybe you're thinking, well, it's the letters. Maybe there's just four really big words. No, that's not it. Four really simple words. The longest sentence in Scripture is this. Let there be light. Yeah. Let there be light. Longest sentence in Scripture. Because whenever we hear this word from God, this sentence spoken, we see God unveiling for us the whole story. Let there be light. The Spirit of God hovered over the waters of this formless and empty earth. There was nothing but darkness, but God said, let there be light. 
this same God speaks to Abraham, who's living a, a life without purpose or hope, and he says, I am your God, and so he speaks to him, let there be light. And then later to a people trapped in Egypt and slavery, carrying the burden for centuries, God says to them through Moses and his mighty acts, let there be light. To a people walking in darkness, the Messiah was sent, the light of the world. And so when God sent his son, he was saying, let there be light. And this same Jesus who was crucified is now ascended to the right hand of God and rules and power and authority above every other power and authority and rule and dominion there is. And through his church and by his spirit, he is saying to those living under the power of evil, that same word, let there be light. You can take this sentence, let there be light, and stretch it from Genesis and make it reach all the way across to Revelation. We hear the whole story, but not only that, we see God's will in this sentence. Let there be light, that all would come to know him, that all would believe, that all disbelief would be overcome. God reveals himself first in Genesis. He continues to do it now. He will in the very end through his son. Let there be light. And yet, that story, that will of God, bound up in these four simple words, so often forgotten. There's a atheist apologist and what that is is that there's, there's a man who doesn't believe in God, and he goes around getting in arguments about the fact that there isn't God. And his name is Aaron Ra. Coincidentally enough, and a little bit ironically, his last name, Ra, is a throwback to the Egyptian god of the sun. So an atheist who doesn't believe in any god has a last name that's the same name as the Egyptian god of the sun. So there you go. Aaron Ra goes around, and he gets in all these different arguments, and he has his own YouTube channel, has made quite a career out of doing this, and what he'll do is that he goes up to people, Christians on the street, or he'll find them like outside of the Creation Museum or, or the, the Ark uh, in Kentucky, and he'll get into them in arguments about creation and evolution. And he'll do the same thing at the academic level. level. He'll walk onto Christian campuses and try to engage professors in debate. And Aaron Raw is good at what he does. He has logical arguments. He's an experienced debater. He, he, he has an answer for everything. And one particular instance, he actually found his way onto a Christian campus and got involved in an argument with a Christian philosophy professor, which was funny because philosophy doesn't answer anything. I mean, I don't, if you love philosophy, I don't mean to insult you, but seriously, I, I think the job of, of a philosopher is to sit around and ask, what does this mean and how do you know it in just different ways? And so here is this atheist apologist trying to pin down this Christian philosopher and all the Christian philosopher is doing is giving him nothing. I mean, they're getting nowhere with each other. I don't want to tell you that the Christian won. It was just sort of this big circle. Well, what do you mean by that? Well, how do you know that? Well, how do you know that? But more often than not, the case is, is that when this atheist apologist, Aaron Ra, will go and have his arguments, well, typically Christians look bad. They're bad. The arguments that they throw out are not really good arguments. Facts that are thrown out aren't really facts. And the, and the pressure to try to beat this guy on camera, people say things that are really off base. And being an experienced debater like himself, he senses that and swats it down hard. It ends up being kind of an embarrassing thing for many Christians. 
But that's not what discourages me, actually. There are better arguments for creation and evolution. There are. It's not that. What discourages me most whenever I see videos like this, whenever I watch similar conversations happen, sometimes right in front of me, is that people forget the story. They forget the words. Aaron Raw has debated many Christians, and in the videos that I've seen, he has never once heard somebody tell him the gospel. He's argued with many Christians over how the world began, but I've never heard, and maybe it's happened, I don't know, but I've never heard one Christian tell him that Jesus died for his sins, that Jesus rose from the dead for him, to bring him out of unbelief into his glorious light. That really just falls off the table. And so as we, as we gather here today in, in our series of tough questions, the, the question that was given to me on, on Easter Sunday was, well, how do we respond to people who believe in evolution over creation? What, what do we say in those things? And I will tell you, I'm going to lower the bar right now, that as we talk about this idea, I'm not going to arm you with a whole bunch of scientific arguments that you can take out and just beat down the next evolutionist you see. Uh, well, knowing those things is important, and I don't want to undermine that in any way. I want to speak to the heart of things today. I want to speak to what matters most. And oftentimes what that is, is proclaiming the gospel. If you come across somebody who knows a whole lot of science stuff, you might very well lose an argument, but so what? Tell them about Christ. Christ has ascended to the right hand of God. He has given you his Holy Spirit. His power is in you. The thing that converts an unbeliever into a believer is not a hole in the fossil record or more proof about carbon dating or, or being able to firmly say the earth was created at this time in this way. No, the power of the gospel is proclaiming Jesus for you. So often that gets unsaid. If you take anything away from today, let it be that. But you don't forget God's desire for the person sitting across from you in spite of all their objections and in spite of all the evidence and arguments is simply this that there would be light for that person but I will say that when we get into these matters faith or unbelief in, in God doesn't really come down to evidence. Oftentimes what it is for people is a source of hurt, a fear, a worry, a question that hasn't been answered by God that a person feels like they should, so they walk away from the faith and find some other explanation for how things go. Listen to the person across from you for that. The weakness in not believing in God is that while you might walk away for suffering or for some hurt, you also leave behind an explanation for what evil is. See, a scientist or an evolutionist can tell you how evil comes to be. They might say it's a genetic mutation or societal or environmental conditions, but that doesn't answer why evil exists. So your why question of how evil might get, or why evil is there, is answered with a how. Sure, those things can be helpful, but it doesn't get you where you need to be. Likewise, if you have a definition of, of, or if you have evil, but you can't explain why it gets there, you also struggle to define what evil is. 
fact, maybe you don't want to define what evil is. And this is something that also happens when we talk about science and evolution. And this is a belief that, that many evolutionists have, that evil is out there, but they don't define it or, or talk about what it is. Because the moment you define what evil is, that's the moment you have to maintenance that definition. That means that you have to work really hard to make sure that you're on the good side and not the evil side. So you can say boldly that evil is out there, but you're limited in what it is and how it comes to be and why it's there. The other problem with describing evil is that, well, the moment you talk about evil and define evil, the moment that's the same moment you find evil in yourself, right? I mean, I think people who don't believe in God would agree with us that it's wrong to murder. When you get into the real nitty-gritty of what that statement means, you find that, yeah, the action of murdering is wrong, but so also is thinking evil in your heart towards somebody, wishing evil for somebody, plotting evil against somebody. All these things become wrong, and all these things make us murderers. One thing we have in common with people who believe differently from us, the, the one thing that we might have in common from those who subscribe to different theories is simply this, that evil is indeed a problem. It's a problem in the world. It's a problem for us, personally. If we look inside, find a little bit of, a, of it in us. So then, the church hasn't really helped with this problem either. And when we're talking to somebody, we can be honest and confess that as well. The church has often done things that the world would call evil. We've given a mountain of evidence that there is, in fact, evil in us as believers. Remember the Inquisition. That's that time in history where it was cool to like torture somebody into believing in Jesus. And I'm not talking about this sermon right now or this worship. This is not torture. Uh, you have a different time period where physical torture happened to people. You also have crusades that were encouraged and sponsored by the church. You have, uh, not everywhere, but during World War II, the church was, in many places, strangely silent about the Holocaust and things that were going on. Not only that, but clergy scandals that go on to this day where leaders of the church fall because of moral failure. We don't need necessarily to cover that up for somebody who believes differently than we do. We need to confess it, talk about it honestly, and to say, yeah, evil scares me too. But a question might be, if the church were gone, if the church were no longer here holding back all this scientific progress that society could be making apart from it, would bad ideas go away? Would evil be any less in the world if there was no church? So once again, we come down to this fact that the problem is us. The problem is the unbeliever and the sin that dwells inside still the believer. And the only way to counter that, the only way to overcome that objection, or really any others, when it gets to the heart, is love. See, the first century church was there at a time where Christ had ascended into heaven, and, and the, the rulers and powers and authorities of that time, of course, didn't believe in God, but Rome had its own mythology, but nobody took that mythology seriously at that, in those days. 
Romans largely in the time of the church were agnostic at best, atheist at worst. And so the church has thrived in a culture that didn't believe in God, that saw alternate explanations for how the world got here. And in those days, the brothers and sisters in those churches didn't really overcome arguments about science or about different theories. Instead, they just lived their lives in love. They were ready to be there when the world came crashing down around people that believed differently. And if we want to speak to the heart of people, then we will endure insult from those who are arrogant about their knowledge. We'll endure shame when the world looks, and looks at us and pokes fun at us. We will not deny the power that lives inside of us, the power of Christ. When we talk about Christ ascending, we're not talking about Christ going up somewhere. I know that our sermon verse says that, that he's far above. He's far above every rule and power and authority. But that's not spatially above. It's not miles above. What it means is that his name, his power is superior to those things. When Luther looked at Christ ascending to the right hand of God, he read through the scriptures and noticed that the right hand of God was everywhere in this earth, that wherever there was a saving act of deliverance being done, God's right hand was there. His right hand was there. And so when Christ ascends to the right hand, he's not going away, but instead, he's present. He's present at communion. And he's also present whenever you speak the words of the gospel someone who does not believe. That, that in your heart, Christ has set up his throne to rule and reign over you, and through your mouth, he will let light reign. We could look at things differently. We could, I suppose, go from the perspective of what it means to, to live under the idea that you're just here randomly, that you evolved here, and we could, we could look at the idea of what it means to be created. If I were to start off on this side, on the side of saying that, well, we just sort of evolved here, I would tell you that, you know, the church is constantly telling you about your sin and how bad you are, but that's not something I have to tell you. I can tell you about your potential, your limitless potential, how there's hope, how this, in this world we can make progress for things and solve problems. And if I were over here telling you about my Christian faith, I would say, yeah, we do in fact say that there is sin in the world. And yeah, we do say that there's a need for every believer and every person to repent. If I were over here speaking from an atheist perspective, I would tell you that death is inevitable. That death is inevitable. Things have a beginning and things have an end. If I were more optimistic as, as an evolutionist, I'd tell you that my matter and the energy inside of my body would be used to create other life in the world. Sort of a science-y kind of reincarnation, I guess. But if I were over here, I would tell you that death is inevitable. I'd agree. Because of the broken image of God that is in us, because of the sinful nature that we carry. On this side, though, while I started off by telling you that there's optimism, that there's hope, that there's great progress that can be made, I would also, in the same breath, say that you get one shot. You only have one life. If you mess it up, you mess it up. There is no redemption. There is no hope behind, beyond your mistakes. There's nothing like that. You screw it up, it's done. 
over here, of course, I would tell you something different. There is, in fact, hope. There is, in fact, a Christ who died bearing the sins of the world. And that redemption of the world and progress in the world is not really up to us, but is in his hands, who lives and reigns on the throne in heaven. On this side, my life is ruled by reason, and reason alone, nothing but cold reason. On this side over here, my life is ruled, and I submit everything to a living person who calls me his brother and his friend in Christ Jesus. So brothers and sisters in Christ, another thing I want us to see is this, that, that, that those who believe this way are like Prometheus who's pushing up the stone. Remember that story? There's this myth about a man who was punished by the gods in Greek mythology and he had to push a stone up a hill, right? And so every time it looked like the stone was just about to get up the hill, it would come rolling back down and you have to run down and push the stone back up again. What starts with optimism and hope and progress inevitably ends in failure and darkness and brokenness. Endure the insults that you might have to endure in believing that God created the world. Do it in peace. Do not strike back. Do not burn bridges. Because those of you, especially those of you that you know that are outspoken about this belief different way, that stone is going to come rolling back down. Hopes will be shattered. Progress will be ended. Even death itself will draw near. Be ready to be there. Speak the hope that you have to them when that moment comes. Having endured hurt and arrogance and just rudeness, because that is what Christ has done for you to do the same for others. Christ from the right hand of God has promised to return. And I pray that in, the, in between, the same thing that Paul has prayed for his church in Ephesus, that we would be given a spirit of wisdom and revelation. That we would be able to give a reasonable answer and defense for our faith. That we never take our eyes off the hope and the certainty because we know how the story ends. Christ will return from the right hand of God and he will establish his throne here on a new heavens and a new earth. And Philippians tells us that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. The age of unbelief is ending. There we will gather before the throne of God and his undimmed radiance and glory and worship him in joy forever and ever, being given new bodies raised from the dead. So our prayer now, and our word now, our message to the world, is that one long sentence that God spoke at the beginning. Lord Jesus, let there be light for us, for those who do not yet believe.